Well, I want to say good morning to each of you this morning. We welcome those online who have um, tuned in for another Sunday, and we welcome you here. I hope you're having a lovely and warm morning on this snowy, um, snowplowed, uh, snowplows on the road um, morning. So God is good, and you're here, and I just want you to feel the love of the Lord today. Um, I'm so glad to have you a part of our church family and I trust that God will just guide you in the next spiritual steps that uh, he has for you to take this morning. You know, I got a call this week from Bob Rose. I don't think he's here this morning, but Bob said, Joey, I got a problem at like 9.30, 10 at night. Joey, I got a problem, got a problem. Bob, what is it? I have too much stuff for my Christmas shoe box. Isn't that great to have a problem like that? I have too much stuff for my Christmas shoe box. What am I supposed to do? Well, Bob, I, I don't know, but, you know, Jane and Bill are really good at this, and uh, I'm sure they'll come up with a solution. You bring all that to church, and they'll make sure it happens. And, um, and, and I talked to Jane just a few moments ago, and she said it's amazing how they pack those things. You put washcloths inside of water bottles, okay? You wrap things with other things. It all has a purpose. And so at the end of the day, um, the kids end up getting a really great shoebox from somewhere, and those things are going to go somewhere around the world, and you can even track those. Um, so we're, we praise God for that. What a great congregation uh, to bring shoe boxes, stuff to fill those shoe boxes, and we do that every year, and, and it'd be interesting to know how many shoe boxes, cumulative totals that we have for all the years that you guys have done that. Just praise God for that. Such a lot of people. Uh, you know, um, we have such a blessed congregation, just little spotlights. I, uh, sometimes I like to just kind of spotlight certain things that are happening in the body of Christ here. And uh, one of the things last week, we, uh, of course, I got up and gave an announcement about the biblical worldview strategy, and that's awesome. And we'll be saying, saying more about that in days to come. Um, really exciting stuff in the future and on the horizon. Conversations even this week, so stay tuned. All right. There's a, a culture out there that has no idea what lens they're looking through. And... Um, and when we talk about biblical worldview, you know, we are not talking about indoctrination, all right? You're allowed to read other things, listen to other people, read other books, uh, 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 go to secular universities and colleges, get your degrees and things. That's all well and good, okay? This is not indoctrination where you're not allowed to do those things. No, no, no. You're allowed to go pursue what God's calling you to do. But here's what we want you to know, that if you want a biblical worldview, we're championing that. That's our purpose. That's our, our uh, calling. That's our mission. That's, our, that's part of our ethos here is that, that we will present a biblical worldview and give you the lenses through which to view the issues. And my goodness, there's so many. We have been flooded with, with a tidal wave of issues um, that it's so hard to maintain focus to focus on really what God has to say about it. So you go and learn and do, but just know that we are committed to being very intentional about being a biblical worldview church. And it's exciting days ahead because we're going to need in our community, big time, and in our world. But uh, after I got through sharing the strategy a little bit last week and was saying the prayer, um, so I, I heard, after I said in Jesus' name, amen, I said, I heard a loud amen from the congregation. Anybody else hear that? Amen, right? And so... I said, Donna, what, what, who was that? What little baby? I thought it was so cute. And so she, she followed up and did a little legwork on it. And it was little Kaylin Alice. And, she, and I understand that as I was praying that prayer, she was saying, amen, amen. Just like 
at different times. Like this prayer should be ending by now. Amen, amen, amen. And finally, when I said in Jesus' name, amen, she went, amen. It came from this side of the room. So you know what? That's what biblical worldview is about. It's about the little Kaylins in life that want to say amen at church when the pastor's finally done praying that long prayer. All right? And so, and you know what amen means? So be it. We got a little girl, little toddler girl praying on that worldview stuff. So be it. May it happen in Jesus' name. She's ready. Kaylin's with me. Okay? Bob Rose with me. All right? Shared the vision with the elder board and it wasn't uh, after we prayed and shared that vision there was a hundred percent buy-in on this they know and they see it how much you need joey well here's a start and here you go let's go let's move so you just keep praying about it because we got an exciting speaker in the in the works for february it's going to be awesome uh you're going to love that um there's some other opportunities you're going to have okay internally we're curriculum development things we're going to pull stuff in that amplifies uh, creation rebellion redemption restoration those big four words okay all right we're going to amplify that curriculum that just develops all of that moves it forward okay so this is the place you want to be so it's the place where the k-lens of the world want to be raised right and, and inundated with just the love of the Lord, the love of people that do Christmas boxes for people around the world, the love of people that walk with the Lord. You know, and, and my wife was telling me this week, even another snapshot. Uh, she said she was at school. She works at a great school with a great principal and great staff. Okay, primary school of town. And she said, she said, I saw a little fourth grader in the hallway at school today. I had him about three or four years ago. And when he saw me, my wife told me this, when he saw me, he says, oh, how I've missed you. The little fourth grader, I know. Little fourth grader, oh, how I've missed you. It's like, well, ABCs is great and numbers are awesome, but you, you got to love people through the ABCs and love people through the numbers, right? And all the things you learn. Oh, how I've missed you. For four years, he's been thinking about that. Thinking about the love he got in kindergarten first grade listen snapshots snapshots boom 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 i could do that probably the whole sermon snapshots all right it's you living the authentic life making a difference for the glory of god and uh impacting people in such a way that something of jesus flows through you and that positions people uh, to be loved and to make even better decisions with their life. This is what we want to accomplish. Uh, you know, I was reading this week, uh, and this is a story that I just can't get away from. Brian Chappell's hometown, he talks about this in one of his books. And there were two brothers who decided to play on the sandbanks by the river's edge in his hometown. I think it may be Pennsylvania, but I'm not sure. But because the town depends on the river for commerce, he says, uh, they do dredges regularly to clear the channels of the sand. And they dump this sand and dirt and things, debris. These huge mounds of sand are dumped by the river. And so you know, right, that children love to play on sand pile mountains and that's what they do. But what they don't know is that there's a lot of danger involved. And while the sand's still wet from the river's bottom, 
the dredges dump it, dump it up on the shore, and the piles of sand, they dry, and it's a rigid crust. And then when the water kind of filters out of that wet sand, it creates these caverns inside these sand mountains. And so when a child plays on the sand mountain, the crust is brittle and it can, it can break and go into these, drop into these cavernous places that, evacu- that have vacuumed out from the wet water that's kind of filtered out of this stuff. And so then the, that creates a crisis because then you've got all this sand that wants to refill the vacuum that's just been created from the child playing on the crust and it collapses in. And so uh, he, he shares about this and how that uh, there were two boys who, two brothers who were playing on this mound of sand. And when the boys didn't return home from dinner, the family and the neighbors organized a search and they found the younger brother unconscious from the pressure of sand against his body. Uh, his head and shoulders were sticking out of the, of the sand and uh, he was kind of unconscious. And then when they were digging him out, he regained his consciousness. And when they cleared the sand to his waist, and there was two brothers uh, that were playing and, and this was, they were caught in this situation. And, and so the searchers, they asked the little brother that they could see, where is your brother? And the child replied, I'm standing on his shoulders. I'm standing on his shoulders. Big brother said, I'm not going to make it. You get on mine. I'll get you up. Isn't that crazy? True story. See, I think there's a couple things I want to say related to that. Another snapshot from the body of Christ. Um, you want a family that raises boys like that. Slide 24. Um, slide 24. You want a country that raises soldiers like that. You want a church that lifts families like that. And you want a savior that raises humanity like that. And the only way you get that kind of self-sacrifice is when you ground your life on something solid and stable. And there's something bigger and more important than me in life. And there's something worth fighting for, worth dying for. And uh, this morning, I would even say you need a pastor like that. And so what I have before you today and what I need to share with you, I want, I want you to receive in such a way that I'm the guy holding you up above the sand so you can still breathe. And when we think about a biblical worldview and we try to determine how we can be a redeeming impact in our culture, one of the things that needs redeemed is marriage. And not only that, how do we redeem marriage? And then also another question on the tail end of that, and, and that's equally as important as not just redeeming marriage, but how do you prepare children for it? This is where um, Josh Mulvihill does such a great job 
of helping us to be prepared uh, in this way. And slide 18 on the screen, if you would, for me. Um, Josh Mulvihill uh, shares with us that if we want to do a great job of conveying the beauty of marriage to our little ones, that we do this from an early age. And so he suggests and proposes that uh, that the teen years are not, are not the time to start the conversation. They're the time that we put the finishing touches on a conversation that's been happening all those years. From elementary, early elementary, all the way up through. And what are those conversations? Well, he's going to talk about that. And he does talk about that. Uh, it's conversations that deal with marriage. That, that deals with the gift of our sexuality, that deals with the gift of purity, the gift of uh, uh, the, the dynamic of dating. All of these things are ongoing conversations that are happening throughout childhood. As to the specific age that these discussions take place, that's per each child and their maturity levels. And that takes some time. And you have to know your child that way. But these are ongoing conversations. And by the time they reach teen years, then you're putting the finishing touches on those. He, he, says, he says, start in grade school and have these discussions. And uh, he, he was, he was uh, talking to a parent that came to him. And this was a parent of a sixth grader that came to him, was visibly distressed. And last night, she says, my son was video chatting with a female classmate, and he was exposed to something that should have, shouldn't have happened, but it happened. And he felt so bad about it because her son knew how much that his parents loved him. And he feel, felt really bad about it, and he was telling his mom about it the next day, and he threw up because it just upset him so much about what had happened. And uh, the mom said, I knew things like this could happen. I knew it could be an issue, but I didn't expect it to happen until high school. And I also thought we had had the necessary conversations, but she said, I found that we were one conversation short. Many parents find themselves one conversation short. And so what we have to understand when we talk about biblical worldview, redeeming marriage, pre uh, preparing children for marriage, giving us a biblical set of lenses to look at marriage, uh, the, the, the uh, relationship of marriage through, that there's a tidal wave that's already been unleashed. It's not just that it's coming, it's already here. And it's a, it's a, uh, it's a flooding it's a sensory overload of gender, sexuality, and marriage type of issues that just overload the circuits. And it's hard for us to make sense of all of it. And so you know how um, I've shared with you that there's a worldview, a set of assumptions behind every, every um, show that we watch or book that we read or song that we listen to. There's a set of assumptions, values, and beliefs that are behind everything that we take in. And, and there's a case in point, slide number 20. Uh, when it comes to marriage, Linda DeHaan and Stir, uh, Stern Nigelin, I believe is the correct pronunciation, not sure about that. They wrote a book called King and King. I checked it out through Evergreen. It came to me from Shelbyville Library. I have it here on my, on my table here this morning. 
And uh, I got a copy. I even looked in the accelerated reading levels 2.9, second graders. Also aimed from about kindergarten to second grade. Kindergarten to second grade. Okay, that's what the book's written for. And it follows a familiar storyline. There's the queen finding a king, okay? The queen mother pressures her son, the prince, to find a woman to marry. And she would be the new queen. And so the artwork in the book is colorful. It's inviting. It's kind of fun to look at. Um, The words on the page are creatively presented. The queen has several um, female prospects of queen to, the, to be the queen to kind of pray before the, the king. One is an opera singer, and I don't know why, but they always make, they make opera singers like incredibly huge. All right, but so she's really big, but okay. Uh, they make, there's a magician in there that's a, that's a uh, possible queen. There's kind of a snaggly tooth one. There's a super tall one, but for whatever reason, they're, they're, they're all a, no, a no-go for the prince. But the, the, the queen brought one more uh, prospective queen to, for the prince to see. Princess Madeline and, and, bro, and her brother, Prince Lee. Slide 21, if you would, for me. And I noticed that Prince Lee, who was accompanying Madeline, was depicted as a more finely featured person than all the other characters in the book, male or female. Kind of interesting. I said, I'm not sure where this is going to go. Well, I kind of think I know where it's going to go. And I noticed that that was a kind of a striking contrast with the other characters. And this is where the story takes a turn. Instead of the king falling in love with the prospective queen, two men fall in love and get married. Second grade. Kindergarten to second grade. You're living at a time when people are telling you you don't have the right to teach your children. That everybody else got that right but you. We'll hear a little more about that next week. Listen, the pictures in the book are descriptive. They're they're present. Uh, the, 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 The two men are happy. It's marriage is normal. The pictures, uh, the men are holding hands, right? Participating in wedding ceremony. Very last page of the book, slide 23. And that's how the book ends. Now, listen to me this morning. I don't care what your worldview is. I'm going to be the guy holding you up above the sand, whether you're, whether you're, whatever your sexual temptations are, whatever your relational decisions are, whatever your view of marriage is, whatever your politics are, I'm the guy underneath going to hold you above the sand, right? I love the people that wrote the book. If, if you ever hear this or see this, Linda and Stern know that you're loved. You did a nice job, nice art, artwork, a lot of good things we can say about the book. But I got a problem with the premise. I got a problem with, and I got to confront the, the, the secular worldview. And I got to confront it at the level that it's coming in at. I have to challenge it. That's my calling. And that's a loving thing for me to do. It's not hateful. It's loving for me to say, wait a second. We've got to check where the implications are from the book and who the book's written for.
right? We've come a long way since the little engine that could. Or Cinderella, right? Listen, this simple little book presents a worldview. It's a secular worldview. It defines marriage radically differently than what the Bible and how the Bible defines it. It doesn't mean we hate the people who define it that way. We love them. They're human beings, but we have to challenge it because we're raising a family, right? We have sons and daughters and we've got to do a good job of putting them on a foundation that's right, that's good, that positions them for human flourishing. No overt arguments are made in the book. It's a story that's simply told. It feels normal. Just like Adam was looking for a mate in Genesis. We'll look at that in just a second. The prince was looking for a mate. It's all great. A longing for a mate is well and good. And the intent of the author for the reader is to view this as just another normal love story. And from a child's point of view, it's just another picture book that mom and dad or grandma or grandpa might read to the books before bedtime. It seems harmless, but it's subtle. It's so dangerous. And by introducing the ideas early, there's a greater probability of viewing this as a normative and even potential path to take in their own life. And they're just in kindergarten through second grade. I'm sorry if that's offensive, but I take issue with it big time, big time. The Bible does not position me to support or to proclaim this as a legitimate option to the prototype of marriage that the, that the Bible presents to us and that I'm gonna share with you here this morning. Listen, the, we, there has to be a moment of clarity where we look at this. We look at what's happening in culture. We look at the assimilation of this, these viewpoints written into these incredible stories like this, picturesque stories. And they're aimed at people at an early age. You know what I think? I think parents are so concerned that their children are loved regardless of sex, the, the gender dysphoria or the, the, the inclinations of their sexuality. I think parents are so concerned that their kids be loved that that's where you get into like mandating pronoun usages and certain rights and groups and privileges. They just wanna make sure their kids are loved. And so what I would just say to you is love people, always love people regardless of the perspective or worldview that they bring. But remember, there has to be a ray that shines in the darkness. Somebody's got to represent the truth. Somebody's got to show a way forward that sets some people up for human flourishing and life and vitality. And the only way we're ever going to find that is we get back to God's truth. And we have an, a discerning mind you know, I, I uh, talked to you several weeks ago about the structure, God's creative norms, and we can bend those, you know, the, you remember the metal pole? We can bend that metal pole toward fallen human nature. 
or we can take and we can bend it back toward God's creative norms. And we, and, and we wanna be a, a people that bends things toward God's creative norms, not away toward sinful human nature. And so what does the Bible say about marriage? Well, it's interesting. Uh, we can hit these um, facets and I call it a cosmic coupling. Maybe you've attended a few of the weddings that I've done uh, and I've been emphasizing these six facets to a biblical marriage, what it means to be a cosmic couple. And it's interesting to me that uh, when we look at creation, that God did not begin the world with government or with a church, he began it with a wedding. And that's interesting to me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so when we look at the very beginnings, we see these cosmic couples that God pulls together. There's these cosmic pairings. There's the sun and moon. There's morning and evening. There's day and night. There's sea and dry land. There's plants and animals. There's, and finally, the apex of creation, there's man and woman, husband and wife. And in every pairing, each part belongs to the other and neither is interchangeable. And so one of the first things that God does after creation is to perform a wedding ceremony. And it's so hugely important to God. And so God designed marriage and he defines marriage because he's designed it. He gets to define it. He's the authority to determine what marriage is and what it's not. I can't marry a pet and have be a, 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 a biblical marriage. I can't marry a device and it be a biblical marriage. God hasn't set it up that way. And so what's the precise nature of this cosmic coupling? Well, we see in slide number nine, if you would for me, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And virtually everything else that's talked about by way of marriage in the Bible reflects back on Genesis chapter two, verse 24. And so when we look at the precise nature of this cosmic coupling of a man and woman, we see that there's certain things that are true, like six different things that are true. And before we say, share those with you, look at verse 21, if you would, on the slide. So the Lord God caused the man to fall asleep into a, a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man, man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And what's maybe what we don't know or, or we're not aware of if we haven't read the context for this. Okay, so, so Adam has been naming the animals and he, he has noticed undoubtedly that every animal has a date. Every animal has a pair. And there's two of them. And so like he comes to this conclusion after this incredible uh, season of naming the animals, everybody has a mate except for me. And so God gives him this task such that not only would he name the animals, but he sets him up to feel the loss and the absence of, where's my mate? Did God make someone for me? Right? I like what Matthew Henry says in 1704 commentary that he wrote. That's a couple of hundred years ago or more, right? And he says, Eve was not made out of man's head to top him. He wasn't made out of, out of his feet to be trampled up on by him, but he was, she was made out of his side to be equal and worth with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart 
to be beloved. And, and so why did God not make Adam and Eve out of the same lump of clay? Well, there's a leadership mandate that he gives to Adam. And he has to assume responsibility for his family. He's got to assume responsibility for books like King and King. He steps in and says, wait a second, family. This might be the book you're reading at your library. But there's a better way to see this. And let me tell you what it is. Right? He understands that. That's Adam's role. Serpent comes in the garden, you get the hoe, and you cut the sucker's head off. He's endangering the family. Adam didn't do that. He just let the snake slither in and do his, do his uh, nefarious work. And so God says, I'm going to make Adam. Adam, I'm going to make him responsible. Who does God go to and talk to upon the, uh, as soon as the fall happens? He goes to Adam first. says, Adam, what have you allowed in your garden? Right? So he's setting us up. Paul emphasizes the order of creation in the New Testament to emphasize the leadership mandate he's placing upon the man, Adam, and all that are in his posterity, right? And look at verse 22 on the screen. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. That's code. When you bring someone to the man, it's a wedding ceremony equivalency that we see right here in Genesis chapter 2. It's the very first wedding. You got God as creator. He's not just creator, but he's also officiant. And just like a father brings the bride down the aisle, here comes God, the creator, bringing this lovely woman to this man. And he just explodes in poetry. And that's the next verse. But it's amazing. It's like the first human face-to-face meeting that we have in the Bible. And the word, the phrasing that's used here in verse 22, he brought her to the man. So one author says, picture this. There's a long parade of warthogs, hippos, orangutans, and every other type of creature all coming before him in pairs of two. And they all had dates. And now Adam, after all that uh, naming responsibility, like I've said, He awakens from this deep sleep and he looks up and the first thing he sees is no longer a furry four-footed mammal, but is a freshly, newly created woman. Fully adult woman. Question, do you think Adam is going to appreciate her a whole lot more? Now that he's had that experience of naming the animals, all who have pairs, he is. He's going to cherish her. Okay, made out of my side, close to my heart, under my arm, protecting this precious, precious person that he's given to me and brought to me. Verse 23, he explodes in poetry. It's hard for us to to, to get this uh, in our kind of the way we think, but it's ancient poetry. It's an ancient, how shall I say it, an idiomatic expression of delight. Um, The man said, verse 23, first recorded words of Adam, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Can you imagine a a groom on his wedding day when his his bride is walking down the aisle, he looks at his best man and he whispers, What do you think about bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh walking down the aisle? We wouldn't understand that that much. 
But what he's saying is, in his own idiomatic expressive way, this is the person I've been longing for and didn't know it quite how to conceive who she was. Uh, Tim Keller says it's a poetic way of saying, as I see you, I now know who I am. You're different from me. You're like me, but there's a contrast. You're different from me. And I know myself more, my masculinity more when it's compared to and coupled with your femininity. And then the writer gives us those incredible words where we find these six facets of a cosmic couple. All right, a biblical cosmic couple. And that is why a man leaves his father, verse 24, and mother, and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. It's like the narrator is reading the Genesis account to his audience, and then he gets to this part, verse 24, he stops the narration. He stops it, shuts it down. He looks at the crowd, and he says, don't miss this. This is what marriage is. All right? And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And I'm thinking, why did nobody ever preach on that verse when I was a teenager? I don't think it meant that Adam worked out a lot. I don't think it meant that Eve had a low percentage of body fat. No, the writer is touching on the deepest longings of our soul. It means that there's total transparency in this primal couple, this beautiful wife that God has brought to Adam. There's, uh, there's an ease with themselves. There's no fear of exploitation. And here's another thing. This is not just prescriptive. It is is prescriptive, not just descriptive. What do I mean by that? Well, when you look at this, a man leaves his father and mother. Did Adam and Eve have a father? They didn't. They had a creator, but they didn't have a father. Well, why does he say a man leaves his father and his mother? Because God is interjecting here his prescription for all future marriages, right? It's not just one type of marriage. It's not just a kind of marriage that can be tweaked among many other kinds. No, it's God's way of saying, what just happened here with Adam and Eve, that's marriage. That's the prototype. And we are to expect this from all future marriages. Now listen, I didn't say that the state can't legalize marriage the way they want to. I didn't say that. They can. They have. I didn't say that two people can't come up with their own definition of marriage. I didn't even say that I would treat you any differently if you decide to find marriage in the way that you wanted to define it. But what I am arguing and proposing this morning, it cannot be rightly called a biblical marriage outside of what God has specified here. No one is at liberty to redefine it. That's what I'm saying. And these definitions do not fulfill God's definition of what a cosmic couple is. Well, what is a cosmic couple? Well, it's really, there's six facets, and I'll just hit them really quickly this morning. And that is that uh, when we think about God's creative norm and structure for marriage and family, you've got to think about it in these six facets, these six ways. You're going to see that it says in verse 24, 
a man and his wife. So it's a heterosexual relationship. It's a complementary relationship. The ultimate cosmic coupling, God puts male and female together with design deficits that each of them need the other to help complete. So it's a heterosexual. It's a, it is not just a heterosexual relationship. It is a monogamous relationship. A man and a woman. Notice, it's, look on the screen, verse 24. Okay, it's a core verse. Key verse in this, in this discussion. That is that a, a man, not men, and his wife, not wives. So the power of love is driven off of its exclusivity. And anytime, furthermore, anytime we see polygamy in the Bible, the family is always a mess and disintegrating. And so we know that that is not part of God's prototypical prescriptive definition of marriage. So it's heterosexual. It's monogamous. There's the facet of loyalty. Look what it says. He leaves his father and mother. No one can have a higher priority over your spouse, not even your children. Okay, and what's really interesting is that he says, you will leave your father and mother. And it was kind of beyond the norm, the cultural norm, because when you look at this, generally the wife was brought into the family. It was just another member of the family. And what God is doing here is like, no, 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 no. You're not just having another member of the family. You're making your own family. You're leaving your father and your mother. You're starting something new. It's a loyal relationship. It's a monogamous. It's heterosexual. It's a public relationship. This is why. Someone's asking the question. Moses is explaining it. This is why we do this. It's a physical relationship, right? Another facet. United to his wife. Take all of your romantic energy to each other once you're married. It's like glue that binds you together for life. It's spiritual. They become one flesh. See, there's a longing inside of us that no husband or wife can ever fulfill. And that longing has to go to God. And when we go to a husband or wife exclusively without God in the picture, and we try to make them fulfill the deep longings of true adventure and romance and truth and love and beauty, we set that thing up for so much unhappiness and so much bickering and fighting because we're going to make a husband or wife do what only God can do. No human can satisfy this deep inner longing to connect with God like Adam and Eve did in the cool of the day and to walk with him. And so to quickly summarize it, marriage is a heterosexual and monogamous union that involves the loving, lifelong commitment of each to the other and should be entered upon by a public leaving of the parents. It should be consummated in sexual union, if at all physically possible. Here's what I'm going to say to you. No matter what activist judges decide, no matter what runaway legislatures determine, no matter what a majority of voters decide, and not even what a children's book author Pens. None of that is the source of where we get our sense of the definition of a biblical marriage. A biblical worldview church recognizes this important truth. Parents, 
start talking about it. Every week, talk about it. Secondly, model it. Model a loving marriage. And uh, it's heterosexual, it's monogamous, it's oil, it's public, it's physical, it's spiritual, right? Model this, talk about this. I'm going to go a third step, have courageous conversations. Yes, it's intimidating to talk about the gift of our sexuality, but you have to talk about this every week. I have a relative who lived in Greenwood, Indiana, and he lived by a doctor. He said, you would not believe the young girls are coming to see me. You better tell your parents at your church. He was on staff at a church at the time in Indy. Tell all those parents, talk about this every week with their kids. I'm physical, uh, a, a doctor that's seeing a lot of young girls. Listen, it's so important, parents. Yes, we want to know what a biblical marriage is. And we want to hold that position with love and grace. And uh, with the understanding that, uh, you know, people are human beings and we're in process and we're working through our definitions. We understand this. But there's also this... In, the sense of a, of a calling, a mandate for us to engage in the discussion and begin to build now and have these discussions now such that by the time we get to uh, our young people, get to the teenage years, we're putting the finishing touches on a long conversation that's been taking place for years. Josh Mulvihill asserts that in his book. Many other authors assert this in their book. The most spiritual thing you can do, one of the most spiritual things you can do is have this conversation about what is marriage, how do you prepare? How can I prepare you for it? Now I got a reality check story to bring this home, okay? Because we all live east of Eden. And, um, and you think, well, Pastor Joey, okay, little reality check, okay? If I do all of these things, right? Uh, if I align myself with God's plan of a cosmic coupling, I marry someone of the opposite gender and compliments. I'm monogamous. I only marry one. All right. I'm loyal to this one. And I endeavor to be united to my wife or my spouse. And, and I endeavor to make Jesus the center of everything. Can I expect to be blessed? And of course you can. I mean, that's, this is God's pattern. It positions us for his blessings. But it's not that, it's not that we won't be challenged in a fallen world. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I think one of the most intriguing areas of marital life is this, this idea of openness and transparency and the relation, the intimacy that married couples share. And I'll talk to you more about how important that is. Um, there's a lot of sexual atheism. What I mean by that is God has a right to tell me everything he wants to tell me in all other areas of life, but he can't touch my sexuality. That's mine. There is no God. I'm God. Bingo. That's it. We'll talk about that. So, but here this morning, okay, listen. Uh, Adam and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame. I just, uh, there's, it's incredible. You know, you know what? I, I just, as I was studying this this week, I thought about this. They could look at each other. It's like the one married couple in history that could look at each other and say, you know what? God gave me, God gave you to me. 
for sure. No question. They could do that. God put us together. Wow. And it's not like they had a whole lot of options if it didn't, didn't work out. <laughs> There's only one Adam and one Eve. It was bliss, right? They couldn't run to somebody else. But when it comes to this area, the cosmic coupling, okay, it's so beautiful. We live in a fallen world. We live east of Eden, and we have disappointments to work through. It's not so much that our spouses are disappointments. It's just that we have expectations that we've got to adjust to real life. And Sarah Zacharias says one day um, she was at work, and she had just gotten married. She had returned from her honeymoon, and one of her coworkers just popped by her cubicle for a second, and she asked Sarah uh, Zacharias Davis, she asked her how things were going, and she kind of tilted her head to the side, and, and she said, no, how's it really going, right? And, and she said, it's okay if you say that marriage wasn't what you expected, because she said, I've talked to other couples who have been married and, and who have gotten married, and, and I even have a friend who got married and found it really difficult, but she never felt like she could tell anybody. And she was so lonely because she couldn't be honest with how she felt there and how she, what she could say about that. Sarah said her drop-in visitor at work moved on and went on with the rest of her day, but Sarah couldn't stop thinking about how lonely it would be if somebody got married and they were honest enough to say, there's a lot of unfulfilled expectations that I have in my marriage. A lot of disappointments I've got to deal with and adjust to. And would they have a place to say that? And who would be a safe person to say it to, right? And so Sarah goes on this research mission to interview um, wives who have gone through these incredibly disappointing experiences and who struggled to find their equilibrium. And especially um, in the area of our, you know, our transparency and the intimacy part of marriage. This can send a marriage into crises if that doesn't work right. I think we all understand that. She says, she tells the story of a, one of her friends. They had a fairy tale wedding. This lady had a horse carriage, something akin to you, what you would see maybe in Shipshawana. All right, the blue gate, the big horse carriage, the lovely, the lovely dress all of the fanfare, all the decorations. She had everything. And just before marriage, she had gone on birth control. She just honestly shares that. And of course, the wedding itself was the focus. So she didn't really pay that much attention, but she noticed that her, that her uh, sexual drive and energy had subsided. And she and her husband had made the smart decision of waiting until they were married to share the gift of their sexuality with their forever spouse. And so they wanted to have a cosmic marriage. They wanted to hit all six of those facets. Bingo, every one of them. And they were able to do that. The wedding night came. And her sexual energy never got better. She knew her husband could sense the lack of enthusiasm, she writes. And it created bitterness because this part wasn't working right. Now remember, you can hit all six and still face stuff in a fallen world. And after all, he'd been waiting his whole life. And this went on for months. And on their one-year anniversary, 
they gingerly tried to approach this part of marriage again, and she ended up turning her head away and her husband so her husband couldn't see her tears and all and she and they never tried to be intimate again for four years adam and eve and his wife were naked and they felt no shame that was not her story she felt so much shame she said we found other things to enjoy but it was all such a mystery we couldn't figure it out thinking maybe it was something else i went to a bunch of therapists she said, I started getting angry with God because she had honored him, right? All the six facets, she was committed to this. She was frustrated with God. Her husband was frustrated with her, with God. It was just getting really, really chaotic in that relationship. And then something strange happened. She said, one week, I forgot to refill my birth control prescription." She said, after a date and dinner at a hip new restaurant in town, the sparks flew on Friday night and it never stopped through the whole weekend. Four years. She had no idea. It was the pill all along. She said, our Mary survived it somehow, but many don't. I don't know what you're facing in your marriage. Whatever it is, God brought you together through a strange series of circumstances, perspectives, relationships, life turns and twists, unexpected surprises. He's brought you together. And it is imperative that whatever your issue is, it may not be that one, but it may be something just as big. You stay with it. You work through it. Because everything you say about marriage is going to be reflected in the worldview perspective of your children. They're watching that. And they need you to work through it and to have these courageous conversations. You know, she tells another story. I'll close with this. There's another wife who shared her story, and she said, uh, in nearly every wedding ceremony that she had attended, um, she would always hear about how the husband and wife and God created this Trinity marriage, right? And so she said, my marriage wasn't like that. So we did Christian stuff together, but we still fought all the time. And she said, our Trinity marriage was an irony because we often have a third person in our marriage. It just wasn't God, right? She says, it was my ex-boyfriend. It was his ex-girlfriend. It was his mom. It was my mom. And I'm certain, and evidently didn't have children yet. I'm certain when children come into the picture, it'll probably be another, that'll be another issue. And she said, these people are just as real in the room as God is to me. The way I was raised by my parents creeps into our marriage fights. And before you know it, my mom is standing right there beside me in my marriage. 
and you don't even realize it. She said, maybe God does want to be the third person in our marriage. But he doesn't want to be the third wheel. Uninvited, unwelcomed, except on the fringes maybe. That's why we have to consciously and intentionally invite him in. Because you can't do marriage alone. You can't. You need Jesus. And what I'm saying is, build it on a biblical marriage, on a biblical basis. But if you don't represent that position well in your own marriage, we're not preparing kids the way they need to be prepared. So it's imperative that we have a biblical worldview of marriage, but that we live that biblical worldview marriage in the real world and such that our kids are prepared for this. This is one of the greatest gifts you can give to your family today. Whatever your problem, and I want you to hear this, I'm the guy in the sand with you on my shoulders. Okay? If you're married online, if you're married as a person of the same gender, I love you. Here at church, if you feel inclined to be, want to be romantic with people of the same gender, I love you. We're in process. Let me put you on my shoulders. Point you toward home. Bend that metal pole back to, toward God's creative norms. It's imperative that we begin to work our way and to start this conversation and work our way toward this. Because so much in your family and in your future, it depends on this. Part of being a biblical worldview church is that we redeem we redeem marriage and we prepare children for it. And so we submit that. I submit this to you today. And I want you just to close it with this. You know, we've been looking at the first marriage, but we could easily look at the last marriage. And the last marriage is a beautiful picture of the union of Christ with his church. You know, Adam's side got sliced open and God formed a, worm, a, a woman, a beautiful woman. And then on, on the cross, about 2,000 years ago, the Son of God's side was sliced open so that a church could be formed. And so he is the ultimate second Adam. He is the bridegroom. He is the, and the church is the bride. And he invites you in. Come home. He proposes marriage. Why don't you say I do? I love you and you got this. And remember, you got little sons and daughters in a congregation who instinctively know when it's time to say, amen, right? Amen. So be it. It's time. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this day. Man, you've hit us hard right between the eyes. Thank you for that. We need it. And I just pray this morning that maybe we've been bending the, the structure of marriage toward fallen human nature more than we should have. And I have a suspicion that that pole that we're bending springs back and smacks us right in the face sometimes. And boy, we get the picture loud and clear we see it 
So, Father, would you help us this morning? Would you just help me to put this church on my shoulders and hold them above the sand? Those who are questioning their gender, those who are questioning marriage, those who are questioning maleness and femaleness and marriage and what that looks like, how it's defined, those who are questioning the the educational values of children and, and, and movies and books and stories and all the influences in, in culture that have, have us questioning so many things. Will you just help me and this church to put this group of people, anybody who journeys with us, on our shoulders so they can get the breath of life they need? Because at the end of the day, it's about love. And I don't know what marital problems are represented in this room this morning, but I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to have a go primal in our marriages. Adam and Eve, only ones. Just us. It's just us. Husband and wife, just us. God brought us together. And now let's live on that truth and that basis. And let's trust you. And then, Father, should your will be for us to give us the gift of singleness, praise God. You've called us to this maybe, some in the room, maybe you've called to singleness. And you have uh, blessed and you've led in their life and they are married to Jesus. Praise God. They're content in Jesus. They're loving Jesus. Thank you. Fill them with your joy and your strength. And may their friendships here be a vital, fulfilling part of their life because we love them. And we thank you for it. So we pray all these things in your strong name. And everybody said, on the count of three, a nice loud amen. Ready? One, two, three. Amen. Stand with me. Have a great day. Love you. See you next week.